Hi, I'm Deepak Madnani, entrepreneur, problem solver, and amateur barista. I am on a mission to help forward-thinking entrepreneurs succeed and grow by understanding two simple rules. Crisis is a clarity opportunity, and the question is never really the question. Today, I am putting my barista skills to the test and sharing a cup of coffee with resilient problem solvers from all over the world. Let's get started. Tell me about moving during COVID. Not recommended. <laughs> Why is that not recommended? Moving countries is difficult at the best of times, especially after you've been in Hong Kong for seven years and then moving to Singapore after seven years in Hong Kong it was going to be tough anyway, because for the girls, they spent the majority of their life in Hong Kong. Narish was very settled in Hong Kong. And so while Singapore has a lot going for it, moving was always difficult. You add in COVID um, and the welcome to Singapore is going to quarantine now. I have to say, we were fortunate. We were able to stay in a service apartment and not in a hotel room. We were lucky in that sense. But still, two weeks confined in a, an apartment isn't a good welcome to a country. It's a new country. Uh, that's why as well, right? It's not like you're two weeks confined in Hong Kong. Correct. Even though, even though technically on paper, it looks like the same thing, right? Yeah, no, exactly. It doesn't matter where you're confined, but yeah. So, you know, you're still confined. And then the whole stresses of, right, start a new school, find a place to live and all of that. And normally, you know, this is our third move now. And in the previous moves, within the first six, eight weeks, we've then caught a flight and gone back to where we just came from, just to final goodbye adjust. or adjust, you know, just have interesting. Okay. decent friends, meet you guys and can't do any of that. So therefore, for those reasons, it's been tough. And as you was trying to set up a network here, again, that takes a bit of time. But with code restrictions, some of the things at school are limited. So there isn't parent gathering, you know, new parents kind of getting together or anything like that because of all the restrictions. So for all those reasons, I would say you can't move countries during COVID. Uh, during a pandemic. Project would not recommend moving countries during a pandemic. No. But we can also make the same conclusion that another conclusion is that Kanea Parag doesn't recommend pandemics either. <laughs> so Kanea Kana, I know him as Kana. He will say he's not an entrepreneur, but I've been calling him an entrepreneur ever since I met him. Currently, he works for Bain Consulting in Singapore for the retail practice. A really interesting background in retail, working for large companies. Originally UK, moved to India yeah. and then to Hong, Hong Kong. Kong and now to Singapore. And this is married and then with a family. And we've been friends since we moved back to Hong Kong. We as in me and my wife and my family moved back to Hong Kong because of the school. And yeah. my impression of Kana is that even though he's worked for retail corporates all of his life, and now he's working for a consulting company, and he'll share his story a little bit. But my observation with Kana is that he doesn't take the corporate approach to corporate life. Okay. Kana takes an entrepreneurial approach to corporate life because he'll share the opportunities that he's chosen. Ultimately, it's been your choice wherever you've decided to go. Yes. And within the corporate as well, whatever you've decided to do within that corporate has been a choice of yours, right? Yeah. So Kana, why don't you give us a bit of a background? What brought you into this life? And then what decisions did you make with respect to different steps forward? Yeah, look, as you said, I'm not, I still don't think I'm an entrepreneur, but anyway, I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that. So I had a chance to be an entrepreneur. So I come from 
in terms of my father, he had jewelry stores, etc. in in the UK. He had a vision, like most fathers who set up a business from nothing to something, that one day my son will take this on and take it to the next level. Especially Indian fathers. Especially. <laughs> correct. And so to that extent, after university, I did spend over a year working with that in the jewelry business. A couple of things came from that. One, we fought like cats and dogs because he had a very set way of doing things. And I was trying to automate it or digitize it. This is back in the 90s, right? So I'm not talking what today or there's no e-commerce or anything like that. Just get a, a pause system that at least we know what we're selling as opposed to I think we saw this much and I think we saw that much in gut feel as it would be more data driven as opposed to gut feel. And he gave me a bit of rope, but not enough rope. <laughs> so we fought like cotton dogs in terms of how I'd wanted to do things and how he was thinking. In hindsight, I can understand why he was a bit reluctant, <laughs> um, given that I'd literally come out of university, had all of zero this much experience and he had had 40 years of doing this or 50 years or whatever it was by then. So what was that? But then the second thing was, it was kind of realizing it was a small enterprise. It's three jewelry stores in Birmingham, the city center, that unless you had a niche, unique proposition and a product range, you're always at the behest of someone larger, the larger chains, kind of looking at that and saying, well, actually, is that something I want to do? and to see myself doing for the foreseeable future? And the answer was no. So I had to have a difficult conversation to say, I know that's your dream, but it's not my dream. I want to stay in retail. Retail was in the blood, as it were. And I'd spent many a Christmas and many a summer holidays working in the shop and selling the gold chain and the watch and the diamond ring to the old lady and whatever. So that was there. So at that time, I applied to in the UK, two larger retailers. One was Marks and Spencers and the other one was Tesco. My heart was on Marks and Spencers because they were the golden child of British retail at that time. And Tesco was this up and coming company. And I didn't make it through to the Marks and Spencers and I made it through to Tesco. And I thought, okay, look, I'm going to move away from Birmingham, which is where my father was, and move to London or Hertfordshire. I'm not going to be dragged into the, the family business. And then, yeah, started my career at undergraduate program at Tesco, which was fascinating. Learned a lot. I remember getting there. Um, graduate programs were relatively new at Tesco at the time. The store manager was kind of going, I didn't really understand this whole graduates thing. like, you guys are going to come and be our bosses and whatnot. What are you going to do? She goes, I'll put you through your paces. After a month of joining, he said, right, you're going on nights. Now, nights is basically starting at 9 o'clock at night and finishing at 9 in the morning. But on two nights, the night manager, again, was like, well, who's this graduate upstart? I'll show him what's work. And you're going to work with a suit on. For the first four weeks, he had me every night on the roster filling something. So it would be a Friday night at three in the morning, I'd take my jacket off, <laughs> shirt and a tie, filling bog roll or filling baked beans for the entire night. That's all I would do. And I'm thinking... Maybe I have to make a wrong call here. I <laughs> just stuck to working, sticking with Dan. Right? Right, right. Friday night, not down at the pub with my mates or anything like that. I'm actually filling toilet roll in a Tesco shelf. It was all part of, if you want to understand how to manage the night operation, you can understand how long it takes to fill eight cages of bog roll. That's four hours work. Okay, right. So then 
when you're managing a team, you know what it's for. So it was the right thing to do, but at the time, it didn't really make sense. So Tesco gave me a lot of career options. I found out I was a square peg round hole when it came to operations. Tell me about that. You found out, what did you say? You found out you were a, a, a square, square peg in a round hole. A round hole, yeah. Okay. Whilst I understood operations, running a shop, etc., cetera, um, it wasn't cut out for me. It wasn't what made me want to jump to work and be super excited by it. It was a lot to do about people management. And I have the greatest respect is for really good store managers because they are the ones who can easily influence a 16-year-old kid who's just there for his beer money to Doris on the checkout, 65-year-old, who's going to retire tomorrow. And they're both on the same team. How do you motivate those two individuals to do the job that you want them to do and get the best from them? I would say the best operation people are very good people people. But are you saying you're not a people person? It wasn't what I was infused by. Let's put it that way. Managing and motivating. Yeah, but I mean, I was more interested in terms of understanding the how do we influence the upstream stuff. Upstream stuff is? What was coming from head office, as opposed to executing the plan, developing the plan. So look, they're in line, and that's probably where I started taking some chances. And so read about this thing, online shopping. It was like, well, this is online shopping. And those you know, people would call up and place an order. And then we had CD-ROMs. This is, again, late 90s. And Tesco was venturing into this space. And there was a role for a marketing manager for that. And I just thought, this sounds interesting. It sounds like something that's going to one day take off. And so, yeah, I applied and got that job. And then I was four years in Tesco.com. And we went from, I was employee number 13. And we were in join, we were doing minuscule amount, like 10,000 pounds a week on online shopping. And by the time I left, we were doing over a million pounds a week, if not more, on online shopping. You effectively found a startup opportunity within the exactly. corporate. It was a startup within a corporate. Mm. And we were very much treated like a startup. And what do entrepreneurs do? <laughs> Coming back to my entrepreneur, why, why Kana is an entrepreneur? <laughs> kind of found himself in a corporate and learned the ropes and then found himself a startup entrepreneurial opportunity within the corporate. It was fascinating. It was full, great. Can yeah. I just the interview? Yeah. Yeah. Do I end it by saying, Deepak, you're right? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Anyways, but let's carry on. But you see, this is where you, jokes aside, you found an opportunity that was unexplored that you wanted to investigate and not just investigate, but execute. Marketing is a lot of what, especially a startup idea needs to launch when you launch, right? This isn't about the R&D part. This is about how do you commercialize things? That's where a lot of entrepreneurs yeah. come in. But this was very much the title of marketing, but you did everything. Exactly, right? You the marketing bit was probably 20% of my job. Bits were actually developing the website. And fun things where I'd be sitting next to the guys looking after the website and saying, what if... Because online shopping is super slow. So what if we had a way whereby whatever they bought last time on groceries, they're buying groceries, right? It turns up and this is what you bought last time. And so they can easily buy it again. What if we did that? Now, this was, didn't exist. Now, it exists everywhere. You go to online mm. shopping. It didn't exist then. There wasn't a blue book on how to do online grocery shopping. So we were just testing and learning. And some tests worked, like the favorites list, but what turned out to be. Other things we'd try, and then the next morning, and the, the IT guy would come and say, KP, that small tweak we made last night to the site, what if we did this? 
well, that crashed the site. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. Let's not do that again. But it was through testing and learning. And we developed so much. If I look at a lot of the online grocery websites today, yes, they're faster and technology is a lot better, etc. But the fundamentals are the same, what it was back in 99. And that's when the dot-com bubble happened. And we had an amazing period of whereby with the likes of Goldman Sachs turning up and saying, if you spin off Tesco.com, now bear in mind at that point in 2000, 2001, I don't know, we were doing, say, a quarter million pounds a week online. And Tesco stores was doing close to 100 million a week or whatever. They said, oh, Tesco.com is worth more than Tesco stores. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the crazy days, right? The first dot-com bubble. Spin it off, do this. And we had this whole thing of who's got the right online grocery model us or web van in the US, we were store picking, they were warehouse picking, and it was a fascinating period. But what kind of came out from that was, and I'm actually moving more and more towards your argument of an entrepreneur. Is My observation, kind of. My your observation. Actually, what I enjoyed was doing stuff that people haven't done before, but within the realms of a corporate. So therefore, I did take the ultimate leap of an entrepreneur, I'm going to go off and do it on my own. That's probably one thing I did, but I was developing new parts to this engine that already existed, Tesco UK, mm. and building new parts to it. And keep in mind, kind of, this type of mindsets, I think, when I was running Paperclip Startup Campus here, there was a lot of talk. So about five, six years ago, my mentoring and the coaching and running the incubator and accelerator, there was a lot of talk about corporate innovation and a corporate type. Again, there's no judgments here. These are all personality types and why people need different types of people. But a corporate type exists to run an existing validated business model. And that's why corporates generally are terrible at innovation. This is what struck me about you because you take this startup slash entrepreneurial mindset into the corporate environment. And I think that's a huge part of makes you valuable in the corporate environment. And if I ask you now, and I don't even know, by the way, so this is just something, it's like almost like a magic trick, okay? I'm reading your mind. But if I ask you, the clients that you work with at Bain Consulting today, are you resonating with the corporate clients or are you resonating with the entrepreneurial clients? I would say it's the entrepreneurial part of the corporate. Okay, but these are entrepreneurs who've built the corporates. Let's just say that as well. Correct. So you are still working with the entrepreneurs. Let's just say you resonate with them, right? Yeah, right, so clearly. So that's just the differentiator, okay? Let's touch on that point on now. So maybe my risk isn't as much as an entrepreneur because... I've got the backing of a corporate. You've got the backing but of a corporate. Also keep in mind that, and this is something where I talk to entrepreneurs about, and I read this great book, Psychology of Money. And I think people talk about entrepreneurs and luck and betting the house. I think the most successful entrepreneurs haven't bet the house. There's always a margin of safety or a safety net that they work off of. That's what takes away that unnecessary part of the stress. I don't think entrepreneurs can build. So a lot of what I went through was betting the house because I wasn't trained or I didn't know better or that's what I thought I had to do. I was working out of overambition and blah, blah, blah. And to just keep coming up crisis against crisis against crisis. While those that have that margin of safety, whatever that means for you, that margin of safety that you go through, you have the room to make mistakes. You have the room to experiment. 
And I think building that is what's really important. And I think you just chose an environment that allowed you to do that. Because if you take that forward now, what else did you do? Yeah, so Tesco.com came up with another idea afterwards to set up Tesco as a media company, which didn't exist. So I pitched the idea to the board members and said, we've got a lot of footfall in our stores. We've got a lot of media assets. We have the largest magazine. We had 16 million people walking to our shop every week. And the moment of truth for any advertising, given the FMCG companies are the biggest advertisers, moment of truth is on the shop floor, right? They do all the TV advertising, they do all the billboard, they do all the radio and whatnot, but it's got to convert into a sale at the shop floor in the supermarket. And that's the moment of truth because everything else. And so how do you ensure that everything they saw on TV last night or on the drive to the store through looking at billboards or on the radio and actually translates into a sale? And that's where we could kind of come into play. So it was kind of setting Tesco up as a media company. And it was kind of fine. But we do it's a one man show to go and try to build this proposition. So I was walking the streets of Soho, knocking on doors, trying to meet media agencies and sell them this proposition of Tesla as a media company. Generated 10 million pounds in revenue in the first year. And then the whole thing was to spin that out to one of Tesla's companies called Ben Humby. And that's what we did. And today they generate 200 million plus on the back of that. So that, again, was built, again, not done before, started from scratch, prove it, and then moved it on. And then going forward or looking back, what are some of the ideas you had that didn't quite pan out? I then did a number of buying roles and I was a buyer for ice cream and frozen desserts. Great job. <laughs> I, had, I had a freezer in my desk. Myself and the beer buyer were the two most popular people in the buying <laughs> All the samples. <laughs> so it's crazy what people do for a double hug and dust. Anyway, one of the things I wanted to do was we launched private label and everyone's kind of did the normal. I wanted to do a specific range. There's a place in Camden High Street called Marine Ices, the best gelato I've ever tasted. So I was, I was on Camden High Street and I went to this place and I tried it. I was like, this is amazing. Then I started going to the owner and I was like, actually, this is good. And then trying to get them to, can we launch a gelato range, which wasn't in any supermarket at the time, at Tesla. Have a pistachio, a hazelnut, and all of that, but as a gelato and authentic Italian, even though it was made in Camden. We got so far, and these were three brothers, entrepreneurs, who built this business and extremely successful. They limited themselves to this one spot, at a great spot in Camden. They hadn't really branched off anywhere else. And I'd convinced two out of the three brothers to do this because this was a big change up then to start selling to Tesco. It was literally going to be triple, quadruple in their capacity there to invest. And we said we'd co-invest in the machinery for them, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. But the third brother wasn't convinced. It didn't pan through in the end. I still think it would have been a hit. But I launched some other wild and wacky ranges on the ice cream front and some of those worked. Some of those didn't work. I thought, you know, classic British desserts as ice cream, apple crumble with custard ice cream. Mm, yeah, no, thank you. Bakewell tart. <laughs> yeah, the treacle one worked brilliantly, but the okay. bakewell tart didn't work so well. So anyway, I think the other thing that then kind of transpired was after no rules and buying pet food and household and whatnot, but Tesco started looking at India. And I always had this romanticism around India. I did Indian history at university and all of that sort of stuff. But no relatives or anyone in India. 
So I put myself out there to say when this India job came up, before even the job was announced, I started speaking to the right people. And long and short of it, I managed to get out as a startup team to launch Tesco India. So there's four of us that were sent out from UK. Another startup, yep. Another startup <laughs> in a new country. It was a joint venture with Tata, and it was fascinating. Four years, probably the hardest job I ever did. Probably the smallest job from value point of view. Everything else was like hundreds of millions or billions. Mm. It was like tiny. When I left it, it was less than 100 million. But it was the hardest job. But the thing on that one, and that is where you come from corporate, and I said earlier, and in the UK, you got some people who just made the machine run faster. And then you got the people, which is where I was, were adding new bits to the machine, make it bigger. Got to India, like, where's the machine? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no machine. Now, you can't import the machine from the UK because this is India. It's not going to work. Even though the UK guys are pushing that machine saying, just take the playbook, buy it. And you're like, and I did that for the first nine months. I tried to apply the Tesco UK playbook in yeah. India and failed miserably because I wasn't adapting to the local market. Let's just say, forget even local market. Let's just say you weren't adapting. That's what worked so well, even under... And again, I'm not judging you for that, but I'm just saying just for entrepreneurs, because listening to this, this word adapting, don't take it in context just for the local market even, because that word adapting yeah. is just taking yeah. the feedback. The right? environment that you find yourself. And it works both uh, ways, right? When you see an opportunity as well. And actually, even from a leadership point of view, I didn't adapt. I was, again, behaving like I was in the UK. <laughs> in many ways, it backfired. I remember when I got out there, uh, the CEO, I was a commercial director, and the CEO was a Scottish guy, Gordon really broad Scottish accent. We went out for dinner one night. And so it was me, the commercial director. There was a finance director who was a Cockney from London. The supply chain director was a Yorkshireman and the CEO was a Scottish guy. Yeah, so the three white guys and me. And Gordon was like, you're going to find it the most difficult here. Literally, this week one, we just got out there. We just went out for a meal together. And he goes, you're going to find the most difficult here. I know you kind of know the language and you understand the culture. Yeah. Yeah. And you look the part. And you look the part. Exactly. <laughs> but the problem is that no one expects me to understand it because let alone, they can't even understand me speaking, let alone we get me to understand India. Whereas with you, people look at you and say, you surely should understand. Yeah. But why would I? I was born and brought up in Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly, right? I mean, again, and, it's... You know, besides my ancestors, even my mom was born in Africa. So my dad was born in India. That connection was quite far removed. So, and it was. And therefore, I actually decided that I'm not going to fall into this trap. And it was a big mistake. It was kind of six, eight months in, whereas actually I wasn't getting anything done. It was all very superficial what was happening. Sure, sure. And it was a case of then changing my style to adapt to the environment and the people, team that I was with. And it was a case of either I tried to get them to all change, and that wasn't really going well for the first six, eight months, <laughs> or maybe I have to change. Yeah. Maybe, just maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's me, not them. Yeah. <laughs> but it took me six, eight months to realize that. And once I realized that, that's when things started motoring. Yeah, but that's now adding another dimension to this whole equation. As an entrepreneur myself, I've lived and worked in Chile, Poland, Czech Republic, China, India, Dubai, US, UK, from speaking some of the languages to understanding accents, changing my accents. Just when I speak, is just something that happens when I talk and travel. I remember one conversation I was having in Hong Kong 
one of my business ventures way back, I was representing a software company from India. And I had one of their developers, software developers here. And I was with a large bank in Hong Kong. I think it was Deutsche Bank or something. And they had their head of IT, who was Scottish, by the way. Okay, so similar story. So he had this hardcore Scottish accent. The Indian was from Bangalore, had a very hardcore Indian accent. And there was me, the confused Indian, sitting in the middle. And I was translating accents. They were all speaking English. And I was just translating accents. It's really funny. But that's just part of the added level of, I would say, richness of life. It's not complexity. It's part of dealing with humans. And they all come with their own. It could be mindsets. It can be backgrounds, languages as well. That gets really interesting. So after India, I know it was Hong Kong. And again, the roles in Hong Kong were much more senior now, right? Yeah. So I in effect the MD for Target's Asia operation. So their sourcing operation. So it was a separate business unit, wholly owned by Target Australia, but a separate business unit with five offices, 300 plus people across Asia, across five offices. And there's a transformation of that business. That was running my reporting line was sitting a few thousand miles away, you know, who I reported sitting a few thousand miles away. I speak to them once a month and, and add my own PL and to manage and the well-being of 300 plus people and opening offices. We opened an office in Dhaka in Bangladesh an office in India as well. So that was interesting in the sense that it was this transformation. How do we get more and more going through the sourcing hub rather than going through agents? But the CEO at the time said, well, why don't I just force all of the buyers to buy from the sourcing office? We have our own sourcing office. Why should they work with Alien Fung or similar when we have our own office? And my answer to him was, that's the worst thing you could do. The minute you force a buyer that you have to do some of this, they will do everything in their power not to do it. Therefore, it's got to come across as their idea. And the only way it's going to come across as their idea, the solution that the team and I are providing in Asia is better, simpler, cheaper than the alternative. Well, there's two aspects here, right? There's the leadership aspect where you're not sitting on the role and mandating something. So there's the leadership aspect and then there's the performance aspect. You're also basically saying you're holding yourself responsible for the competitiveness that you need to bring to the table for this behavior to change. And guess what? That's how every company has to compete. I don't want to use the word survival of the fittest in terms of it's a war out there. Not really. It's how much value are we creating? Yeah, we had started, and I looked at the operation that I had, and I was like, I was a buyer before. Would I source from this office? My answer was no. So I was like, if I wouldn't, then why am I expecting hundreds of people across wherever to source from me and then become match fit in our transformation plan. In the first nine months, the phase was called becoming match fit. And you know what? That's an important phase that entrepreneurs go through when running our own businesses, when the market, I use the word punches you in the face, basically nobody cares about you. You realize it's not because they don't like you. It's where's your competitiveness? Where's your value? And that's then what you have to step up. I say you're either starting up, you're either growing or you're restructuring. So which phase are you in, in this whole game that we're playing? So this phase is much a lot about people, having the right people around me. and realize that in terms of not only my diary reports, but even the structures below, etc., was around having the, the right people, giving them the vision, this is what we're trying to do, giving them the unvarnished truth of where we are, mm. being highly critical of where we were and saying, look, let's cut the crap. These are all our areas that we need to pull our socks up on. This is where we need to get to. 
And even before we go and talk to any of the buyers, we sort of X, Y, Z out. And then mapping, co-creating the journey with them. And what came from that, you'd find very quickly, was what I found was a number of my senior team. The first six months, I changed 80% of them. Mm. Either they put their hand up and said, this is not for me, thank you. Or there were those who paid lip service to the transformation, but didn't mm. really want to change. Therefore, they needed to be managed out of the business. But it was key of having, because there's no way I could do this on my own. I had to have the right people. It's the same in the India job as well, whereby literally recruited a whole new team. But the biggest enabler for what we went on to do was having the right people who were of the same mindset. They weren't clones, but sorry, of the same mindset in terms of the new, they also wanted the end goal needed to be done. But I didn't want to get people who were like me because actually what I found was there are areas that I didn't know so much about. The first role I hired was a very good HR person. Needed that person to help me recruit all the others. Then the next person was finance because finance wasn't a strength area of mine. So I needed a CFO and then built the rest thereafter. So someone was managing the numbers, someone was managing the people, and then I can focus on the transformation. So you've touched on two strong topics here, one on just leadership in general and managing change. And the other one is, I think this is another thing we need to come to terms with as we go through the entrepreneur life cycle. There are different people required at different parts of the journey, the different mindsets. We ourselves are also growing and changing and learning. And then we're bringing that with us. I think that whole honesty part, the assessment of the, un, what did you say? The unvarnished, Honest, yeah. the unvarnished truth of how are we performing. And that's why I always say crisis is a performance indicator, yeah. nothing else. Crisis is a performance indicator, nothing else, full stop. Take it as such. And then when you're able to quantify, evaluate where you're at, then you plug in your vision, or at least you plug in, let me get back to being competitive and then work out the vision later, but you still then need the right team with you. And I think last year for a lot of people, COVID, and I think this year continuing as well, that's going to be the big reality check. There is the two things I've been having conversations with people. One is the ambition check. Sometimes your ambition can be too big or I use the word unrealistic from the point of view that it's going to cause more confusion and frustration rather than motivate you. What you want is to be motivated. And then secondly is the reality check. What do you have to play with right now? <laughs> what do you have to play with? What's missing? What are the moving parts? And then you quantify and you make a plan. But without doing that, you're going to be in a place where you don't want to be at. And then you're going to be forced to make the assessment anyway. Rather do it with intention than reaction. Kana, as we wrap up, I want to ask you a question I ask, or you've probably had asked before, is what would you tell yourself 10 years ago? But what I want to ask is what would you tell yourself as advice 10 years ago that you would have actually followed? Because people get a lot of advice. What would I have told myself 10 years ago that would have followed? Kana goes back in time and meets his younger self. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think there's a couple of things. One is... Of course, look after your physical being, but look after your mental being. There's a lot of stuff that you can get stressed out about. Either stuff that's happened or stuff that might happen. And as a result, you forget to focus on what is happening. There's this thing, I can't remember who, where I saw it, circle of concern and circle of influence. There are things you're concerned about which are outside of your influence. Okay. And there's nothing you can do about it, but you, you spend a lot of time worrying about it. Yeah. Or the stuff that's within the smaller circle inside, the circle influence, stuff you can do. And so focus on what you can do and don't get stressed out on stuff that you can't do too much about as such. So one is that. 
in terms of focus and where, where to focus and kind of looking after your mental health, as it were. The second one I would just say is along that journey, Tesco journey, Target journey, etc. You know, there are lots of ups and downs. And there were things that happened that at the time made no sense. It was like, this is a freaking disaster. And you're like, it can't get any worse. And some of it, for example, my time at Target came to a close because Target was bought out by a sister company. But from that came Bain because I had a few months off before transitioning from Target to the next role. And then a friend of mine from India was a Bain partner, knew that, and he kind of asked me, he said, well, we've got this case, grocery, would you mind being an advisor on it? And I was like, well, why not? I've <laughs> got time until I start my next gig. Why not? And from that, that snowballed into me then joining Bain on a full-time basis. Something I would have thought never. I'd never, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, as you said, the whole thing I would have said never. And here I am three years in. But it's interesting, the powerful point there that I noticed, which is one of the, and I know COVID has been challenging for a lot of people. I know it's been for you as well, kind of personally. But one of the gifts of COVID is that point of time where we have this forced slowdown. Mm-hmm. So just like you said, from that crisis of effectively having to look for another opportunity because you did well and your company was acquired, they didn't need your role anymore. Interesting. Every role comes with that uncertainty. And there is the time to assess. And this isn't about looking for something better. No, but it's a time to assess, take a deep breath. And then, and I know we had a few conversations back then as well with respect yeah, to yeah what to do, how to do, how to approach things. And, and I think one of my approaches, which is how I developed also the Growth Edge balance sheet, was to assess what I have today, skills, yeah. talents, experiences, and then what I want to out of life, which is the whole ambition check. But with that time, basically gives you the space to reassess and look at, which is, again, healthy. We can't keep on that hamster wheel, running, running, right. running, and expecting that we'll suddenly come up with a magical insight In fact, these magical insights always pop up when you're totally disconnected and when you've had time for that decompression. I think what's important is that piece of advice, I think, is one way you're saying, I know one door closes, another door opens. But I think the more powerful message there also is having that time off to assess and reassess. Just unplugged where there's no pressure for the next thing. And that's not to say you're looking for more opportunities again, but just yeah. What are these relationships? What are these things that I enjoy doing? Have different conversations. I've actually used my COVID time a lot for that. Once I've gotten over the, all the scare of dealing with COVID and like the whole world is just assessing and then trying to find out where exactly is my footing? How deep am I? Okay, I found my level. Okay, now start from there. It's okay. It's an assessment, a reassessment. Just start from there. Kind of, that was awesome. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks. <laughs> Coming back to our earlier point, then, yeah, maybe there is a slight entrepreneurial twinge to me, I guess. Twinge. We're still in denial. Kind of, we never spoke about what beverage did you get. Oh, I got a free ginger tea. Oh, nice one. I made my... Yes, your fancy coffee machine. From my fancy coffee machine. It's a four bean blend. So South America and Ethiopian. So I had a wonderful experience over here too. Awesome, Kana. Thank you for joining the conversation today. Did you have any moments of clarity? I would love for you to rate and review this episode. Your feedback is crucial to tailoring this content for your growth needs. If you would like to hear more, please be sure to connect with me on LinkedIn and or message me on DM at DeepakSCoffee.com.